If you're enjoying Hatch, you can support the show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. It can be a one-off thing. The money is going to be used to support the creation and the launch of season two. So if you're interested in seeing another season come to life, just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'd be so grateful. Welcome to Hatch, where society's creative and artistic souls share their stories about starting something new. From actors to artists, to dancers, to founders, to designers, to writers, to musicians, we explore what triggers their compulsion to create, how they develop and share their art, and in a world that tells us everyone's too busy to listen, why they bother at all. Des Hamilton is a Scottish-born, London-based, award-winning casting director. Des has worked in film and television for over 15 years and has casted an eclectic mix of projects spanning many different genres. Some of his work includes casting Jojo Rabbit, The King starring Timothy Chalamet, Ordinary Love with Liam Neeson, High Life with Robert Pattinson, The House That Jack Built with Matt Dillon and Uma Thurman, and of course, the casting of Top Boy for Netflix, for which he won the 2020 BAFTA for Best Scripted Casting. Dez is particularly well-known for his street casting methods, where he finds raw, undiscovered talent who have often never acted before. He famously street cast Thomas Turgus in This Is England, Tom Sweet in The Childhood of a Leader, Kathleen McDermott in Morven Keller, for which she won a BAFTA for Best Newcomer, as well as an array of cast in Top Boy for Netflix. For Des, it's the actor who is always front of mind. No one should ever leave our offices feeling bad about themselves, he says. Des, it's such a pleasure to have you on Hatch. Thank you for joining. Happy to be here. Thank you. So Des, you grew up in Glasgow during the 60s and 70s, and I'm wondering what was your introduction or first memory of the worlds of film and television? I lived in an area called Govan Hill in the south side of Glasgow. And uh, the road I grew up on, yeah, about 100, 150 yards away, was a massive sunmet. And it was a big part of our, our life. You know, we would go cinema at least every week to see whatever film was on, sometimes films. And then as a young child, five or six, we would go to the Saturday morning cinema club. Yeah, there was something magical about it. And the screen was giant. The sound, everything about it, I just loved. And it was very social. We'd go down groups of 10, 20, and we'd see people from the area. It was a very friendly environment. When you'd go to the cinema, did you realise this is a world that I want to be part of? I read that you started off with modelling and then moved to acting. So was it kind of always something that was on your radar? We were very working class and it wasn't something that you thought you could be part of. Mm. Like there was nobody, I didn't know anybody that was part of any of those worlds. In my area, men tend to tended to leave school f- very early and go into a trade, you know, go into an apprenticeship. I knew from a very early age I didn't want to do that, but I didn't think any other kind of something like a, a world of foam was accessible for me. 
So did you sort of fall into it through, I guess, the progression of from modeling to acting and then eventually into into casting? I didn't really model that much. I was the <laughs> I was a flop model. <laughs> I definitely wasn't a top. I was a flop. I did a few jobs. Yeah. Probably when they couldn't get anybody else to do it. <laughs> and stuff and found myself in London quite young. And I, I was very fortunate to get taken on by a, an agency, but for it wasn't something I viewed as a profession for me. It wasn't going to be a career. Where I where I did okay, I would I did quite a lot of commercials, you know, so I'd be around many film sets and I found it quite exciting. I would be a bit of a pest, you know, I would sort of be wandering around the different departments, you know. What do you asking do? questions? Yeah, what do you do? How does that work? How did you start? And I'm not a person that gets disheartened easily. But one of the things where I was uh, quite perplexed was that a lot of the people that I would speak to, I'd say, how did you get into it? How did you get started? It was because they had uh, some family influence, a friend of the family or their father had done that job or an uncle or an aunt. They knew somebody in the profession. And I thought, well, I fucking know nobody in the you know, this profession, you know. I was uh, totally mesmerized by all, you know, the boom operators, the people who moved the camera around. And I was really fascinated by director's slants upon it as well. I, I wasn't particularly bothered about what I was supposed to be doing. And I think that... As the actor. Yeah, that showed... Like, I'm distracted right now with yeah. everything going on behind the scenes. Yeah, I was like, wow. Around about 1990, I did a fairly big commercial for a well-known brand, and it was a bit of a big deal. But I remember when it turned up on set, I looked at it, and I was like, oh, fuck. They must be filming something else here. And, you know, and I'll be filming something else in a small room with a one camera and a few people. You thought it was a big shot, like Hollywood film that they'd set up for, and you were going to go off somewhere yeah, else. They, they, yeah, they were. I, I was, <laughs> and I was intrigued. I wanted to know what they're filming here. And there was <laughs> the guy saying, Oh, this is that. And they'd cranes and they oh were casting stuff, you know. And I was like, Whoa, look at this a proper location, a big set, all these people buzzing around. I thought, Am I, am I, oh God, I'm part of this. You know, and yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe better look at the script. <laughs> better learn my lines. Um, yeah. That's something to do. Yeah, it was wonderful. It was, uh, you know, I was very young and I was very immature in terms of life experience. You know, I hadn't experienced much outside of my my neighbourhood, and you know, so it was a whole new world. You know, mm-hmm. somebody coming over to you and saying, "Would you like a coffee or a sandwich?" and I would. I'd be like, well, no, if I want a coffee and a sandwich, not not in a rude way, but I would be like, no, if I want a coffee and a sandwich, I'll go and make myself one. Hmm. You know, I make my own thing. You know, I didn't, yeah. whole, the little things like that were just, you know, that you would get shown to a trailer and it was yours, and I'd be like, all right. <laughs> I'd sit there for a second and think, right, this is fucking boring, and I would go out for a wanderer around the set. And go and quiz people on yeah. what their tasks are. <laughs> Somebody, poor, poor guy or poor lady was trying, trying to get on with her job. 
who is this guy with all his questions? <laughs> yeah. I'm still very much the same. Yeah. Yeah, 35 years on, I'm still quite curious, curious and inquisitive about, you know, I'm a bit more sensitive to what they're actually doing at the time, you know. But uh, yeah, I still want to know. I'm still interested. It's just an amazing, immersive world, right? I can so see how you'd just get mesmerized by its magic, I think. So at what point did you realize that you had a knack for discovering talent? What was sort of the, the catalyst point for that? I don't know. It's not something I don't think of myself as having any tremendous insight. I'm aware that I've got a very strong work ethic, which came from my mother and father, you know, very hardworking people, my older what, what brother. What did they do in, in Glasgow? My mum and dad, my dad was a bus driver and my mum was uh, the conductors. And they met and got married and had my older brother, Bobby, and I. And my father went into construction and my mother was a home help. You know, like work was a big part of our life. And my brother got a trade and became a joiner and stuff. So, and they all worked hard and did okay, you know, and I Mm. think that drifted into me in a way, you know, that's, I don't think I've got any knack or special ability. What I will have is I will, I will work until I fall over to find what the production needs, Mm. you know, and I started that way and it's, yeah, it's very much again the same today. That's, I guess, quite special, the fact that that value that's obviously been so embedded in your family is kind of, in your eyes, I guess, the key thing that's helped you achieve what you have and then that's been passed through in just a different format to how your parents embodied it, I guess. I'm curious about how you start the process of casting a film or TV series because there seems to be so many bits to this puzzle and I'm wondering, you know, do you look for the lead first and then build the world out around them or how do you go about doing that? Well, very often on a project, they'll have the director and the producers will have an idea of who they want for the lead and there might be some negotiations going on there. So I think your casting director is brought in around your lead's specifically to provide a backup and help facilitate the process of engaging them through their agents. You know, if I'm fortunate enough to work on a film, I uh, I approach each role with the same intention and uh, as, as the lead roles. Films live and die sometimes, I think, from, late, from casting, you know, and lazy casting really shows itself. The detail around it is very important. I think you need to find actors that that are doing one day on a film are equally as important as somebody that's on for the whole six, eight, ten, twelve weeks. And I can imagine finding the chemistry between all of the different bits of the moving puzzle could be quite challenging as well. Like if you're trying to cast the barman and you haven't had a chance to sort of test that with the lead or what have you until a certain moment, and you're trying to kind of envision how it all plays out and how they can all bounce off each other and work together. That sort of seems like it could be 
challenging but rewarding. Yeah, well, totally. But you've got to have a lot of faith that you're watching these people audition. They've got the ability that you're after and they've got the energy that you're after and you've introduced them to the director and they've done a little bit of work together and then the directors chose them to play that part opposite somebody that's got perhaps a much bigger profile in the industry. But you're looking for people that won't be phased by that, that will come in and do their job as well as they can. You know, to approach it with the very often intensity that's needed. Like that that barman's commitment, the barman that's got to say, you know, a few lines, you know, react in a certain way. It's the same level as same level of commitment is required as your leads, mm. I feel, I believe. Yeah. You know, you can't have anybody coming in with the attitude of, oh, I'm doing a couple of days on a film. It's a really small nothing part. If that's your attitude, please don't apply. Don't can you bait. see that quite early? Like in the audition process, can you sort of identify, okay, yeah, that person's come in with the requisite level of intensity? And I think I can see, a, well, I don't know what I can see. I think I have a feeling for people that have kind of got a bit of self-respect, respect for their craft, respect yeah. for the project. If somebody pops up in there, come in and read for a part, but their body language is suggesting that the part is beneath them, that they should be a much bigger role. You know, they get the same opportunity, but if that starts coming through, then, yeah, it has to be avoided. It's a, yeah. It is a team game. Like, I rely, I have four colleagues in our very small company, and I rely heavily on them. I hope they rely, they feel the same way about me. You know, we, we're all in it together. Feels like the film and TV sort of behind-the-scenes production side of things, like there must just be that family feeling a lot of the time. Oh, yeah. Well, that's why I, I, I very often when I think of Top Boy, I call it, you know, the Top Boy family. Yeah. You know, to everybody involved, it's a very... It's an important show and they're telling they're telling the truth about what goes on in that environment. Mm. They're humanizing it as opposed to glamorizing it. Some of the less savory aspects. You know, mm. it just stem, it stems from circumstance and humanity. And that starts from the writer, Ronan Bennett, to the producers at Cowboy Films and the people at Netflix now. And then we need a, a cast to come in and populate it as honestly as possible to serve the project, not to serve themselves. And we've been very fortunate thus far that people have been doing that. And mm. that therefore, it, it has developed that family atmosphere. And we're all on each other's side. Yeah, it's come from such an authentic place and it feels like it's filtered into like every part of part of the production and I guess it also is a reflection of the fact that so many of the cast have been cast in a really authentic way like you use street casting right to fill most of those roles and I know like in a, a previous conversation that we had you know you you walk around 
East London, kind of just looking for talent and engaging with people who could potentially fill these roles. How much of that do you think has, or that method, has impacted the authenticity of of the show because I read something from one of the the cast. He saw a post on Instagram and he sent in a video of him sharing about a time that he was almost stabbed in East London. And so sort of just spoke and came from this real experience of, of living it. I kind of, when you're creating authenticity, it doesn't hurt to have the real, real deal within the cast. People that have never acted before, people that respond how a person would respond in that situation on those streets. And also, I think non-actors provide a beautiful reminder to experienced actors of that rawness. It's human nature when you get along and things are going well for you, your environment changes, you're making a few quid, you know, you picked up a bit of technique. If you're on set and you're opposite a young actor that's just totally from that world, it puts you in check and you think, yeah, man, I've got to raise my game. You know, that we, we're constantly saying that in the Top Boy auditions. You know, could you do it again, but don't act. Just talk. Yeah, say whatever you would say. And that's, uh, you know, I always had a really good relationship with our writer, creator, Ronan Ben, and he's, uh, you know, he writes it meticulously. But he'll say, you know, tell them to say whatever they would say. So you the know? actors actors can come in and, and sort of change the script because they're like, this doesn't actually represent what's going on. Well, no, that, there will always be a representation of what's actually going on, but, you know, dialogue-wise, they can't change, you know, the overall Plot. Yeah, yeah, they can't do the overall shape of things, but what they can do is they have an intention and the scene has a certain shape. So long as they're respectful to both and don't veer too far, far from that, yeah, say what they want. You've obviously got a way with getting the most out of actors in the moment. And I read a quote from one of the Top Boy cast who said, at the audition, Des just pushed me. He said he wanted truth. I was in character and I remember just switching. He was cursing me, telling me I was a waste man. I wanted to punch him. I took. I even took off my tracksuit top, like, let's do this. It was very heated. Afterwards, everyone was quiet for like 10 seconds. So, I mean, that must be a pretty amazing feeling, that moment when you kind of know that they've they've cracked it. Yeah. I'm, I'm more worried about one somebody cracking my jaw. <laughs> Have you had that almost happen? Yeah, loads. Loads. In the audition room? Yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it's like a gym. It's like a, it's like a, wor- it's like a You're getting a workout, Diz. Yeah, it's like a fight club for actors. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't know. So you, that's really tickled me. I kind of remember it, but I remember it in many different versions, that story. Yeah, I push, and sometimes language will become a bit flowery, and there'll be a few insults flying around. <laughs> I mean, it's, you're Scottish. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, but, but out of that comes, what genuinely comes is that uh, sometimes people forget that they're at an audition and just start 
Bien. How would you describe the relationship between sort of you as the casting director and the actors? Because I know so so many people that you've cast have just kind of credited you completely for their success. And I know that you get referred to as Uncle Des by a lot of the top boy cast. I'm sure a few other names. I don't think that I don't think they're all complimentary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Des is the one that gets printed in the media. I heard that last night, actually, that somebody, somebody said that. Um, yeah, I'm flattered. They're, you know, I'm happy to be. They're probably, Uncle. They're probably making fun of me. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, well, I, you know, you forget, I, I've known, I've got a kid, I've got a 16 year old kid, you know, and I think. And I am a 55-year-old man that's unfortunately had a lot of bad experiences growing up as well. You know, I was a drug addict. I was caught up in, you know, police. And, you know, I was in rehab at 19 for a year. You know, I've had my own journey. And I suppose at times I can't help but, even if it's unwanted, you know, throw a bit of advice around you know, I've been doing this 20 years now. Some of them were coming to auditions when they were 11, 12, and you sort of watching them grow up. Yeah. Uh, but more so on Top Boy because because the audition process, like you mentioned, can be quite um, demanding, shall we say. Hmm. You know, it can be quite alternative. And the language can be a quite choice. So Not your standard but, auditioning process. Yeah. I love Jasmine Jobson, you know, that plays Jack. She's a close friend. Like Saffron as well, you know, they're, they're, they're just wonderful human beings, you know, and they're safe with me, I'm safe with them. If we're in the audition and it's not working and I feel as if they're not doing as well as they can, I will say, for fuck's sake, yeah. You know, because she knows that I care about her, that I that I want her to do better, and yeah, I'm I'm sorry if I can't convey myself in a more delicate, sensitive manner. But I have said to, I've said to Jasmine, "Fuck's sake," you know, like because for me, Jasmine's one of the best actresses I've ever improvised opposite. You know, she's got something very special. So when it doesn't hit the level that I'm used to, yeah, I suppose I'll, I'll feel a wee bit pissed off and I'll say something, you know, and you, the result of that, you know, she threw a chair at me across the room. I dodged that. I almost, really? I almost smashed the windows in the studio and she oh got cast. She got cast. She went on to being Top Boy. She's one of the best things in it and she's now nomin- nominated for a BAFTA. Yeah. So I've got to jump out of the way of a few chairs. <laughs> then, a few then, broken jaws later, but we've got we've got yeah. some great acting out of it. You know what? If she if she had her smacked me in the mouth, I would have took it. You know, because I wasn't very polite. If that was necessary, yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. You know, but um, and everybody has bad days, like you, like yeah. me, like everybody. My colleagues in the office. I walk in some days and I think, oops. I'm in trouble here with one of them, you know, and I think, right, just, you know, be careful around them that day, stay away, stay out of the way a bit. And they do that with me, and I'm like, 
well, 100 years older than all of them, you know, and they're, they have to, they're like, oh, he's in a little boy tiz. <laughs> no, and, and, yeah, it happens. It's like a family, though, it sounds, because you, you kind of know that you still love each other, even if you're in a shitty mood for, you know, that Wednesday or whatever. The I next think, day, it's going to be okay. I think they, I think the, the girls that I'm fortunate to work with, Alan, Georgia, Joe, Sophie, and Cousin Mo, I think they're a family. I think I'm like a, a stepfather that they didn't want. Um, <laughs> Yeah, the stepfather who's become an expert at avoiding chairs. Yeah, 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 at least yeah. Well, maybe maybe they can learn that from a few moves. (laughs) (laughs) They have their own ways of doing stuff and improvisations and auditions that are equally as effective. That's cool. So they have kind of rain a little bit to to just... Yeah, my way way is what it is. My way isn't even my way. It's just in that moment something will happen and you make a choice and hope it's the right one to to push. You recently won the 2020 BAFTA for Best Scripted Casting for your work on Top Boy. Firstly, a massive congratulations on the award. And, of course, because of COVID, the announcement was initially made virtually. So where were you when you found out, and what was that like? Uh, <laughs> it's a really, really poignant question. I was in Paris. I took my, because of COVID, I've not been able to do holidays with my 16-year-old son. You know, his mother and I are, are divorced, but we're very good friends, and we you know, the three of us are all very good friends, my son and my ex-wife. And so it came up, I could go to Paris, and also I'm working on Claire Denis' next film. So I could tie it in with a meeting with her and some other productions. So we went over and uh, it was on YouTube and Facebook and some channels on the Friday night. And I went to bed on the Thursday night, you know, fully aware that I'd been nominated and uh, something came over me. I was like, I, I want to win. I was really flattered to be nominated and I was really happy for the show, for all involved and for the cast. And, you know, and I was thought, oh, well, there's four of us nominated. And I looked at the other casting directors and they're all people I really admire and the work they've done on them shows I really admired also. I couldn't turn around. I was flattered to be in there, you know. I, I knew the show was good, Top Boy. I knew that was a strong series, and I knew that some great actors in there, but I, you don't associate it with yourself. But yeah, so there I was, absolutely knackered on the Thursday night. We'd had a big day and jumping around the shop. My 16-year-old son loved, loves clothes, so we'd been, I'd been dragged all over the... Paris. Yeah. <laughs> me buying stupid stuff that I don't need as well. But anyway, we had a big, nice big dinner. I'm back to hotel. Yeah, and that moment happened. I, I thought I was just going to fall asleep, and I was like, oh, God, I really want to win this. And I didn't know why I could. Now, I do think about stuff like that. I said, do I want to win it for me? What will it mean? Or whatever. I couldn't articulate it. I couldn't. I just didn't know why. But I wanted it, and I couldn't sleep. I can I was like I was like, Jesus, this how has this crept up on me? Next morning I my son was in a room a couple of floors down. I went down and knocked him up. I said, Let's go for breakfast. I didn't sleep. I really want to win this and he was like, Oh 
Oh God! You know what? My sleepless father right now. <laughs> what happened? What happened to Good Morning? And <laughs> you know, and I said, and at breakfast I said to him, you know, just to let you know, I'm not myself. <laughs> it's had an effect on me. And he was like, and he was quite confident. Huh? Yeah, he was like, he said, I think you won. I said, oh, I, I, thanks. One thing led to another before we knew it was tea time and we'd had a bite to eat and we switched the laptop on and watched all the other awards. Really enjoyed the show. And, um, yeah, it came up. And when, when it was announced, my son went absolutely ballistic. He was so happy. I was so, um, uh, yeah, yeah, I couldn't love him anymore anyway, but at that moment I was like, he really... He was really happy for, he knows a lot of people in the show. He was really happy for the show. He was really happy for the writers, the cast, the directors. And he, he was really happy for his dad. So wow. it was a very, I was worried, but he was still celebrating. And I was worried about getting ejected from the hotel. It was quite a Glaswegian football fan celebration. <laughs> the two of you or who yeah. else <laughs> just the two of you two of us is uh, enough <laughs> no, no other guests are required you know they must have thought we'd won the double rollover triple national 800 million lottery we really that's amazing yeah. you were just that on that level he yeah. would have had the proudest son moment i can only imagine what he was he was oh, feeling. He was up. He was everywhere. He wasn't near me. He was, and then he threw himself on me. We, and saying that as well, you know, like it was nice that moment and after it, and then to calm down. But then, you know, without seeming too earnest, it doesn't really feel like a time for. I hate to come across as earnest. I'm not an earnest person, but we had to pre-record our speeches, mm. and at that point, it made me aware of. This isn't really a period for self-celebration. Even within that, there was a, a lot of people associated with the show that were nominated that didn't get there. I was kind of aware of that. So it wasn't, it was a nice moment, but it wasn't something to be going on about. Almost in a way, there's a really special element around the fact that it was you and your son just together being able to celebrate it as well yeah. and kind of have that experience and just kind of take off wherever you needed to take off to that night. Yeah, <laughs> uh, truly, yeah, it was wonderful. I, I, do, I do think, imagine there'd been a ceremony and we'd me, him and I were sat there. Yeah. Well, speaking of, I've heard rumours that there might be an additional ceremony or something of that nature at some point in the future. So I'm wondering if there is, who would you most like to present your BAFTA to you? Um, this came up recently. Um, this came up recently. Um, well, there's two Celtic players that I adore. One of them is our current talisman. Odson Edouard, a French footballer, and he's wonderful, and he's, you know, but he seems like a really nice bloke. So Odson, the Celtic players, it would be uh, Odson Edouard or the captain, our captain, Scott Brown, I think is a great man. And uh, I love watching. I love that he's our captain. 
our leader. He he holds the team together and he, he's the glue that holds the whole past 10 years. We've had a really nice time and I think he's a major part of it. But he's been the leader for the oh, past year. Yeah, yeah, what a legacy. I know. He's, he's our second most decorated captain after Billy McNeil. Actually, I should get down on my knees when I say that now. Well, Billy McNeil for me is the greatest Celtic player of all of all time. And Scott Brown's second most decorated only to him. That's but I watched Moonlight again recently and I love Naomi Harris. Yeah. She's like one of my favourite actresses. Not quite sure of my motives why I would want her to present her. <laughs> I just, I think she's a wonderful actress. I think she's a wonderful human being. So, yeah, perhaps if she had time. Yeah. Well, so. Naomi, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Take note now. She's probably jumping on a plane to New Zealand this moment to get as far away from London as possible. <laughs> if she hears me requesting that. <laughs> that question's bounced around, you know, it comes up. It came up from Netflix and from Cowboy Films that there will be some kind of, if not a ceremony, there will be a presentation. Yeah. You know, and they say, well, who would you, who would you have? Yeah, so Naomi Harris, Hudson Edward, or Scott Brown. Or a hybrid of the three could actually be. Oh, yeah, would that be too much to ask? I don't think so, dears. I think that's fine. I'd make dinner for the three of them if they wanted to come round. Come on round. Yeah. You you and your son can show them what the original night was like and just sort of do a a 2.0 repeat. I don't think they would enjoy that. (laughs) The the decibels. (laughs) The more I think about that, I I do think uh, the work that she's done, Naomi Harris, is really impressive. Impressive. If you won a BAFTA, who would you ask to present it to you? Well, I don't know what, I would, what I'd win for. Um, but, I mean, Meryl Streep is the first one that comes to mind. Yeah. I well, love that woman. Yeah, me too. No, just, just an average, you know, just your B grade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure she's nearby. I'm sure, yeah, she's, I'm sure she's listening as well. Her and Naomi are probably listening together, I, I yeah. would say. I could imagine her saying yes. If you do when you're baffed and you request her, I would imagine her saying yes. Thanks, Des. Yeah, she, she seems she's... Different. She's a kind woman. Yes, yes. She seems. I've been thinking about the connection between your ability to discover raw backstreet talent and the fact that you spent, you know, a lot of time in your youth in the back streets yourself. So I'm wondering how those years may have impacted you as a casting director and your work. Um, through no fault of my parents or family or immediate environment I grew up in, you know, I, I elected to go in the wrong direction and did get involved in, you know, on several aspects of childhood around drugs and I was sentenced to rehab for a year when I was 19 you know and and other kind of yeah there was bits of it that were horrible you know so you know just clarifying that I made those mistakes and I do feel I was punished and 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 you know what's it called paid paid my 
you know. Jews. So, but being around that environment of people, you you can tell when somebody's at it because we're all bullshitting most of the time. We're all frightened and we're all coping and we're all lying in some ways to elevate ourselves as being tough, being capable, being stable, being smarter than we actually are. Because if, we were, if you are smart, you won't. You, if you're a smart kid or you're a smart person, you wouldn't be involved in drugs or crime. You know, so I think that's helped me in, in terms of being able to communicate with people. You know, there's no need for any get, getting to know you bullshit. You know, you think, oh, this person's got a similar sense of and we don't have to do that dance of figuring each other out. You just know there's you, you had common ground. Get to the core of them. Yeah, quickly. get to the core. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you know, I, I uh, the last relationship I was involved about heartbreak and stuff, and then you find yourself wanted to talk about it possibly too much, and then you're aware of that. But sometimes you meet somebody else, and you you sense. They understand and they'll be sympathetic and they won't be judgmental. And before you, you know, they've they've said their name, you say you've shook hands and you're like, ah. You're both in tears having yeah. a breakdown. Yeah, you both, yeah, totally. And, and the person, Holding each other. Yeah, and they're not far off that, you know, sometimes. And they're like, yeah, you, you sense they've experienced it and you can see that the heart. And also very often in auditions, to get the best from the situation, from the actor, actress that's coming into the room. We don't have a lot of time with them. We don't have the luxury of, you know, having a cup of coffee, shooting the breeze, and, you know, you've got to be quick and try and try and make them feel as safe and as secure as possible so that they can freely, you know, go in the direction they want to with that part. Mm. That, that they don't feel you know it's a terrible thing to feel judged by people you know I I have suffered it quite a lot but because I, I'm not a particularly good speaker anyway you know in terms of my movement the movement you know how I enunciate and then that coupled with a Scottish accent and then that again just a little icing on that cake is I'm a working class kid from Govan Hill, Glasgow. You know, like the way I'm talking to you just now, if my mates heard me talking to you like this, they would slap me around. I, I would, can you just maybe do a, like a line of how you would speak to your mates? Can we? Oh, oh, well, I can explain to you right now. I need to go on saying, because there's some kind of bell and I need to let them upstairs. It is right now is just uh, going to. <laughs> it's the postman. Well, and uh, as kids, we all around that world, we all imagined ourselves as wise guys of a sort. So you learn to talk with your mouth closed and you learn to be succinct and you learn to be as broad slang-wise as possible so that even if somebody did overhear you, they might not know what you're talking about. Wow. Yeah. But in saying that, you know, like, we'd be talking as if none of us were talking about our participation in the fucking 
robbery of Fort Knox. We're talking about five pound deals and ten pound deals. <laughs> but to us at that moment, we were Jimmy Cagney and Humphrey Bogan. You know, I always ending with you know saying nothing. Watch yourself. Don't say you seen me. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. This five pound, five pound situation. So you've yeah. almost had to train yourself not out of it, but to have a different version of how you speak. Well, Mason Glasgow do bust my chops about the way I speak now, but I've been here for 55. I've been here for 33 years in London and spent a great deal of that living in places like Australia, loved in America, loved in France, Italy. It just happens naturally. You're actively yeah, involved by being around that. It's not intentional. You yeah. know, I'm very, I'm a very, very proud Glaswegian. I've got where I'm from. I couldn't tell. Yeah. <laughs> I've got Gavin Hull tattooed on my chest where I'm from. Do you know, I love my area. I love, I'm a very proud Glaswegian. But, but you know, two people that want to judge the slight change in my accent, you try fucking repeating yourself five times when you're just trying to order a cup of tea and a slice of toast. You try saying it five times. Sooner or later, you all say, could I have a cup of tea, please, and a slice of toast? Yes, that would be lovely. Thank you. <laughs> That's the way it's got to be. Yeah. At the same time as you obviously discovering raw talent, you've also cast some of the biggest names in the business, and, and I've mentioned a bunch in, in the introduction. And I would love to hear a little bit more about the casting of Jojo Rabbit and what that experience was like, especially with Roman and Archie Yates, who both played Jojo and, and Yorkie. Um, it was a wonderful experience because Carfew, the producer, and Taika were brilliant guys. It was an unusual experience that I'd never worked on a film where the producer and director had so many clear ideas of who they wanted. Oh, wow. Did they so come they, into you with, like, these are the people? And yeah, and they, they were connected to all these people, like Stephen Merchant, for example, that's fabulous in the film. He's amazing, yeah. So they wanted us to, and Rebel Wilson and stuff, like, they're all friends, you know. So they wanted us to challenge that. More so, like like Taika, you know, he's he, one of the nicest men I've ever met. You know, he would he'd arrive in the office directly from the plane from LA and go to work and grab quick naps in between and quick bit of food. And every kid that came in, he jumped up and he made them feel like they were the only kid he was seeing that day. And they all knew him because of Thor. And they wanted pictures with him. He would improvise with them. And he was he was brilliant. Carfew was there supporting everything. He's such a kid, it seems, like in the inside as well. Yeah, so I I, He's dedicated to enjoying himself. He's got a real commitment to it. Even I saw him recently. I was over. I was in LA when he was doing the Oscars thing and stuff. And he was just, he'll have a look at you like, fucking, do you, do you believe this, mate? And I'm like, no, I don't. Some of the Pinch stuff. ourselves now, like, this is wild. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's a bro. He, he, so the, the remit that we had for Jojo, he wanted a kid like Yorkie physically. Huh. Yeah, so that was our remit. Then it changed a bit to become more Roman-like. 
Roman had been to the office before for auditions, but he wouldn't have been somebody we would have thought of because he was, at the time, the polar opposite to our remit. But then in the final weeks of casting, it changed a bit where he wanted to see more kids kind of of that ilk. And he met one, a young kid called Joseph, that he really liked. But then I think Roman and his father and mother were in Los Angeles and they were doing tapes and it was building up and they were coming in and he he was saying, what do you think? And you couldn't lie. I said, yeah, he's definitely got something. But at that time... Taika had settled on Archie to play Yorkie. Like they had it's such just a perfect. It's just <laughs> every time. I was watching again last night and I was like, there is something magical about that child in that role. He's wonderful. He's so wonderful. He's such a sweet kid, sweet family. I could see Roman and him, I could see them becoming friends. You know, I remembered Roman from his auditions and that he was a nice kid. His mum's a very lovely lady you know, and now directing. Yeah, so it all worked out great. And then, you know, the only other audition that really stands out for him is when Alfie Allen came up. I just, you know, he came up for, I can't remember the character's name. Not a coffee yet today, Anna. Early bit, early bell. I know. Sure, you had your tea, I can see you drinking it. No, they're doing that lemon stuff people are talking about, lemon and manuka honey and stuff people keep oh, recommending it. For your throat, it's meant to be quite good. I popped a bit of ginger in there as well. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> the, the, Alfie yeah. Allen, he played Finkel. Finkel. He came up and we read a lot of people. And strangely enough, it was a part where Taika and Carfew hadn't discussed. You, they didn't have somebody they liked from a previous film or somebody that Taika's met. Uh, so we were concerned about that role, you know. Cause I think it is a tremendous film, but I think it, it all came together all in people. It was really quite special, you know, and that my that's nothing to do with me. That's to do with Taika. That ensemble that he chose, he did that superbly. I really, I really salute the work that he did there. But we brought, we brought Alfie. And he was, uh, he came in, and Alfie's a really nice lad, quite, you know, just really pleasant nature. And then he did the first take, and I just wanted him, we all wanted him to go, we were just laughing. You know, it was a short take, but you remember so many bits of it, it was so funny. And his mannerisms, and he, he prepared beautifully, and he nailed it. And Tyke and Carfew saw that, and... They thought, yeah, yeah, that's him. That's this guy. So, yeah, the whole thing was a wonderful experience, and it was a a very good life lesson for me. Somebody that perhaps um, I'm sure there's been moments in my career where I've been jaded, going into the office every day and seeing thirty, forty people, you know, and sometimes I've possibly been a bit tired and forgot it's this person's travel to get here it's their moment their audition nurture it respect it you know meet them halfway you know that that was a a great lesson Uh, that that leads perfectly on to a question that i was really interested to hear your answer to 
What do you think has been the biggest lesson that you've learned from your time as a casting director? To be kind. To be kind, you know, um, uh, yeah, it definitely has um, decreased my levels of self-obsession. I, it's a character trait I have that I dislike most. You know, I feel so much better when I've been of service, you know, that um, I've had terrible moments as a casting director where I've been grumpy, tired, and uh, maybe sometimes pre- people have probably felt that, and I regret that. And if I could, I would apologise, but the best apology I can make is to endeavour not to for it not to happen again. Sometimes you just forget, you know, you forget that for these people it's a bigger deal for them than it is for you. It's quite well known in auditions, I'm quite abrupt, abrasive, and swear a lot. So sometimes people think, ah, I'm going to do that back and come in and be really aggressive. And very often I think, mate, Hang on, I I haven't done anything yet. I haven't. Well, I've been really. I haven't spoken. Yeah, I haven't. You know why are you being? You know, like I think. Um, yeah. Kindness. You come across as very kind to me. So. Thank you very much, Anne. Thank you. But but another lesson that goes side by side with that is that um, along the way I thought. Or I can help pass some information on because I'm a person that meets on average a couple of hundred people every week. And I learn a lot from that. And I think, well, I can perhaps pass something on in a suggestive manner, never in a prescriptive manner. But uh, what I would say to actors, actresses, what I try and say if I feel the would like to hear it or open to it as um, the greatest tool in an actor's repertoire is the ability to listen. And I think it's underestimated. I think it's underestimated in, in life and society. But if an actor can really listen, you, you know what it's like when you feel somebody's listening to you. It makes you feel warm, feel pretty good. And, if you can give somebody that back, you know, and uh, I think a lot of thing around acting is people perceive it to be a a doing thing. It's not. It's not as. It's a, a lot more passive than that. Is it more receiving. It's more. Well, you know, we're talking, and, yeah. well, we're talking just now, and we're talking. You respond, and you say something to me, and I respond. So there's. We're, we're meeting each other at a level and we're being respectful of each other. You know, you're present and sometimes that's when acting is pretty bad because they're not present because they're struggling with the fact they haven't prepared. So, you know, say I asked you to do me a favour today and come up and read a few lines to them, you would notice it straight away. You, so say your line is, oh, I'm sorry I'm late, I lost my purse and had to walk. You would see people that wouldn't even hear what you said, that your morning's been difficult. 
and they would just be like, right, I've got my chunk of dialogue here. And they'd be like, here I go. Well, well, I was like once, and they'd just start doing instead of taking a moment to... You never see that very often. Like a, a kind of sentient person would give you a nod at least or, or just a wee, you know... Acknowledgement. Yeah, sorry about that, mate. You know, I think I went off track about that. But that- no, that was great because it almost feels like acting can come down a lot, a lot of the time to just human connection and just being present with the other people that you're in the room with. Totally, totally. We've come to the final words section of this podcast, which are a series of short questions asked to every guest. So, Des, what profession would you like to have if you weren't a casting director? A professional footballer. That was so quick, the quickest answer I think we've ever had. Could you describe the industry in three words? Massive shit show. (laughs) What are you not very good at? Everything. What's a song you'll never get sick of? Grace by Jim McCann. What is your greatest fear? Failure. What quality do you most like in another person? Truth. You're speaking to 16-year-old Des. What would you say to him? You're that fucking needle of your own. Can I, can I say that? Get that fucking door up, girl. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, can I change massive shit show? Yeah. I've got a big thing bug just now about this. The push for diversity is if we should be fucking, get, we should get a medal for it. It really annoys me. Like this, oh, oh, we must have some diversity. No, mate. You should always have had some diversity. This shouldn't be a fucking patting yourself in the back for no longer being racist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It kills me this kind of a thing that is if, oh, we're really progressive. No, it's 2020. Three words to describe Andrew. Um, full of hope. I love that. All right. Des, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on Hatch. Can I say something? Absolutely. You've got wonderful quality about you for doing what you're doing. You really do. And I think I'm really going to listen to Hatch and log on and stuff, you know. But um, you're very easy to open up to. And I think you're very human and you listen. And I just think there's moments of that where... You know, I felt very safe to say whatever I wanted. And I think if you can let these people know that, and they do, it'll be really great. It'll be great for them as human beings. It'll be really great for your listeners. You'll be providing a tremendous service. And it'll be really good for what you want to achieve with your podcast. Thank you so much, dears. Like That yeah. means so much to me. It has honestly been the biggest pleasure to have you on Hatch. So thank you so much for for making the time. Thanks so much for tuning in to Hatch. If you enjoyed the episode, I'd love for you to rate, review and subscribe to Hatch wherever it is that you listen. 
it makes every difference. See you again next week for another episode. Bye.